0: So, Patty, I was uh, really excited today to talk to uh, Alexander Renzi from Map Advisors, who specializes in uh, buy buy and sell side acquisitions. Um, You know, we've just really never had a conversation like this in the podcast before where we're talking about growth through acquisition. Mm -hmm. And if you think, well, I'm too small for this episode to matter to me. No, you're not, because you may be thinking when you listen to this, you may say, well, wait a second. Maybe I could acquire a portfolio in my local market. Maybe I should think about outside capital differently. So this is one of these episodes that I think is going to kind of expand your thinking. If you haven't been thinking down the lines of acquisition and outside capital, I did this intentionally uh, kind of following, I'm not sure if it was the week after or closely following the interview with Dustin Magazine or about kind of more of the organic growth because I really want to give our audience like a broad concept Mm -hmm. here, Patty, of how to grow in 2023 and beyond. And this episode is kind of more about the outside capital route.
1: Yeah, I think that I found it very educational. And, you know, when we first sat down to this interview, I I was like, well, James, you can take the lead on this because this is a topic that just kind of like, you know, goes over my head. But I came away, you know, with a pretty firm knowledge base. So I I thank Alexander and I and I um, think our listeners will will have the same experience. And then, James, tell us about your uh, questions in the field.
0: Yeah, so I followed up with really question that I, I should start. You know, some of these I think are more questions from the uh, executive room or sorry, the executive. You know, the conference. From the room.
1: executive suite, right? Yeah.
0: Um, this one is just talking about mapping out your version of success as it relates to outside capital and growth, and um, I don't know. I actually really enjoyed this one. I I just kind of feel like, um. This is such an important one. If you're thinking about growing, you need it within context of what are you trying to accomplish? Right. What do you want your life to look like? And so I think that was good. And then, Patty, I really enjoyed yours. So talk about the BNPL stuff. Yeah, the buy now, pay later
1: market is just exploding. And, you know, um, I came upon some pretty esoteric research that that uh, really explains, you know, why merchants are, are clamoring for this. James, what do you say? Should we get going?
2: Let's go. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast.
1: All right,
0: everybody. I'm here today with Alexander Renzi, and uh, Patty and I are going to be talking to him. He's the managing partner over at Map Advisors, and we're going to talk about acquiring other companies. So we've talked a lot on the podcast about kind of growing your portfolio value, making yourself attractive uh, to be acquired, but today we're going to talk about growth. Through acquisition. Before we dive into that, Alexander, we have to hear your story. It's very interesting. So tell us uh, how did you get into this crazy industry?
3: And then what was your path to Map Advisors and kind of what you're doing today? Absolutely. Well, first, thank you for having me on and congrats on the success of your show. You and Patty are always providing great insights for our industry. So really Thanks. owe you a debt of gratitude there. Oh, thank um, you. I started out on the entrepreneurial side, probably like most of your listeners about 10 years ago. I founded an alternative lending company. That company was acquired by one of our referral ISO partners, and I became the COO. We grew that company to about 12,000 merchants before eventually selling. I then started another ISO that was focused on the community and regional bank channel. And after selling that business, I joined my now partner, Jim Batista, who's also a founder in the space. Together, we run MAP Advisors. We are a fintech advisory firm with a core focus on payments. Most of our engagements are helping founders sell their business. I think clients value that we were once in their shoes as opposed to most traditional bankers. Um, We also have a large consulting practice. We work with everyone from the card brands, sponsor banks, ISOs, ISVs. Probably the most relevant consulting service for your listeners is our portfolio optimization practice where we basically audit residual streams to identify savings, but love what I do. Love the space. We have an amazing team and awesome clients. Love it. Awesome. So
0: um, this is a really interesting conversation. And again, one we haven't had on the podcast. And so I want to like clarify what we're going to talk about and then dive into the question. So again, for those of you that are listening, what we're talking about here is, you know you've got your you know you have an ISO and you are looking to acquire another company, another portfolio, maybe a tech company, whatever it is, in order to grow and scale your business. So as you're looking at twenty twenty three and this is a really interesting context because, we actually just had a podcast I think would have aired the week before this one uh, with Dustin Magazine where we kind of talked about the path to growth where it's a little bit slower path using cash flow, growing organically. This is talking about growing through acquisition where probably outside capital is going to come in and, and things of that nature. So I guess my first question for you, Alexander, would be what are some of the reasons that you see specifically ISOs and, and payments related companies? why are they looking to acquire as a path to growth? What are some of the key reasons that you see them looking down that path?
3: Okay, yeah, I mean, this is an important question, obviously for the buyer, but it's also something I encourage my sellers to think through when they go through the process. I think you really need to put yourself in the buyer's shoes to understand why they want your asset, and it usually helps lead to a positive outcome. But going back to the original question, I think the the main qualifiers for acquiring a business are, one to collapse time and two obviously to create value. And both should be true for successful acquisition. So what does it mean to collapse time? The buyer has to really ask the age old question, build versus buy. I think the most common example of that is scale. Let's say a seller has a portfolio of a thousand merchants. Could the buyer go out and spend less money to directly onboard a thousand merchants? Probably, but depending on how many deals you do a month, this could take you know one to two years instead of two months with an acquisition. Mm -hmm. I think two other reasons a buyer may need to collapse time is for one certain grow to market strategies. Say for instance, you do 1099 model and you want to establish an inside sales channel. It's a lot easier to buy one than to build one from scratch. The other and the most obvious is probably collapsing time on technology, like building a gateway. Could a buyer with no technology experience build a gateway from scratch? Sure, but it's going to take a long time. You're going to make a lot of costly mistakes. And then I think finally going back to the creating value seems obvious, but it must make sense financially. One plus one better equal more than two. Going back to the scale example of the portfolio, if you're buying a portfolio to double your business, but the cost is so high that it puts you in a cash crunch, you're better off not doing the deal and just building internally. Yeah, yeah. That, that
1: Actually, that's a great segue to what I was wondering, You know, you know, why should... I mean, I think you just answered this question of why should you know a well-established ISO buy an ISV or other tech-related company. But I want—I wondered if maybe you could dive a little bit deeper and explain how that can impact
3: their valuation. Absolutely, it can—it can definitely go one of both ways, right? Right. Um, I, I think on a—I <laughs> think on a macro level, you an ISO would want to buy an ISV, quite honestly, to stay relevant. You know, ISVs that embed payments continue to capture market share from ISOs and most ISVs business models are less inclined to offer reseller opportunities. So, you know, going back to the buy versus build, building technology from scratch is really hard. If you're able to acquire a proven solution, it's a lot safer path to execution. You still have to execute, but you eliminate a lot of the early day fumbles. Um, I think once you acquire an ISV, The great thing is you now have in-house technology. I think ISOs are very well positioned for that feedback loop with their sales team to help improve the existing product. And they're very quick to identify other opportunities. So if you have an in-house tech team you can shift quickly and execute on those. Um, The second part was how does that impact valuation? I mean, look, if you can successfully acquire and integrate with an ISV you can drastically increase your valuation. You go from being valued on portfolio multiples to SaaS revenue multiples. That said, I've seen a lot of these transactions go wrong, right? A buyer could overpay. The tech and the sales teams have different cultures, so they might fight. Or probably the most common one is you don't integrate the two businesses. What I mean by that is, let's say you buy an ISV that's focused on auto dealerships, and you leave it off to the side, and only 5% of your auto dealers are integrated you won't see the lift in your valuation when you eventually go to sell. Right. Let me me ask you this, though. You know, one of the other
0: interesting options we didn't talk about there um, is, you know, strategic partnership. So talk to me about, you know, just to kind of bring this into context. So let's say you're talking to an ISO CEO, right? Yep. They've got 10,000 mids and they're looking to grow. So why should they choose to buy uh, a, you know, a a gateway, right? Versus going to a different, you know, processor agnostic and and using it in that way. What's, what, what
3: are the kind of pros and cons of those two like approaches? Yeah. A lot of it comes down to valuation. I am a firm, firm believer of trying the partnership route first. um, As long as you're not tying yourself into things you can't unwind down the road, right? I think you get to learn through partner's expertise. And when you eventually want to either buy or build something, you have a better roadmap. So again, start with the partnership and then eventually turn to a buy. When you own your own product, the advantage there is you get to build however and whenever you want, right? If you're beholden to a partnership, you're beholden to their timeline, no matter how fast they say their, you know, dev cycles are.
0: Right. So you, there may be features you, you see a big value in building a particular feature for maybe a niche you're going after, but maybe your larger partner doesn't see that.
3: Right? Yeah. And oftentimes if if you're discovering a niche, you know, the the partner is... Incentivized to release that feature to the rest of its audience because they probably have a use for it as well.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you may make a great suggestion and they might build (laughs) that and then everyone gets the value and then it's all of a sudden not a competitive advantage. Um, Yeah, Yeah. I love that. And I think too, kind of the, you know, aqua hire, do you see that coming into play, especially in terms of these verticals as we see the increased verticalization? Do you see companies, payments companies saying, well, like in your example, we want to go after auto dealers. We don't know anything about auto dealers. So maybe they want to you know, do an acquisition so they
3: can get the CEO of the company, that the entrepreneur that built that, that knows something about that. Is that. Are you seeing that as well? A hundred percent. And I think that's going to happen a lot more in the next couple of years, given sort of the market environment. A lot of these software businesses aren't running with profitable unit economics, so they're going to run out of cash. And I think ISOs are very, very good at selling and managing cash flows. Whereas most tech companies are not. So I think there's a huge opportunity that you're going to see sort of the the merging of the two.
1: Yeah,
0: that's a, that's a good point. So let's shift our focus a little bit. So, you know, we've talked about kind of the rationale for making an acquisition. Um, now I should mention that we're, we're recording this on December 19th because things change so rapidly here. But <laughs> right. my, my, my very, very loaded question that you may or may not be able to answer um, is, you know, talk about the capital markets right now, whether it's investors, private equity, whatever it is, you know, What's kind of the enthusiasm around these types of deals in our industry? Is there a lot of action still? Is it slowing down? Like what are you seeing?
3: yeah, we we are in very, very strange times, and I'm sure this will be completely wrong by the time it airs. But um, you know, where we sit today, obviously public equities have dropped drastically. Interest rates, you know, are probably going to go all the way up to five percent. so it's it's very obvious we're going towards a recession. What's different this time is there's probably over a trillion dollars in private equity and venture capital money that's sitting on the sidelines that still needs to be deployed. So what we've seen so far is the investor shifting from sort of a return to the fundamentals. Kind of what I talked about a little bit earlier, but companies that were growing at any cost, you know, companies burning cash just to grow without a path to profitability, they've gotten hurt the most. Mm-hmm. Companies with good growth that are making a profit, they're still fetching premium multiples. Um, I think aside from financial metrics, the next biggest drivers are really integrated solution. No surprise there, but groups that have a proven ability to push out technology solutions with high adoption rates; those one are still you know fetching premium multiples. Sure, sure. So,
0: so let's talk about some of these different avenues. And, and again, I think this is an area where a lot of, of those in our audience may have heard some of these kind of buzzwords uh, financially, mm-hmm. but they may not be really very familiar with them. I think it's I think it's it, it's interesting, Alexander. Like I talk about it all the time on the podcast. But I'm like generally appalled by the use of capital in the ISO <laughs> community, or or lack thereof, I guess I should say lack thereof. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the, I'm really excited to have this conversation because I want to kind of you know give a little bit of an introduction to some of these concepts. So let's start with private equity, which seems to kind of be I don't know your thoughts lately. It seems to be kind of the the main way our industry is is going as far as outside capital. So. Yep. I own an ISO, I've got 10,000 mids, and I really want to do something. Like I've got the next seven years of my life mapped out where I want to build a huge company. I want to acquire other businesses. Why and how would I go private
3: equity route? Ooh, uh, I could do an entire segment about I know, probably right? private equity, but um, <laughs> I, th- I think before, before listing the pros and cons, I think it's really important for your listeners to recognize that an entrepreneur has to make a fundamental shift once they take on outside capital of any kind, right? You go from the owner of your business to a shareholder in the business. Right. This means, you know, you have to stop making decisions based on what's best for you because you have a fiduciary duty to do what's best for the business. For some founders, that can be a sigh of relief, right? You get to de-risk by taking some money off the table. You get firepower to grow your business and some founders find being a founder is isolating right so having investors to think through strategy can be great some founders their identity is so wrapped up in the company that any critical feedback feels like a personal insult right so it can be a really tough transition i think before an owner takes on any capital i would highly encourage them to create an informal board to at least see what it's like to report to somebody else a lot of entrepreneurs you know myself included in my early years we started companies because we were horrible employees <laughs> um but right. go, going back to private equity, uh private equity can be a game changer for your business if you partner with the right group. They provide obviously capital to grow your business organically and through acquisitions. and the good PE firms, they'll help you with operations. they'll help you bring corporate governance. they'll do go to market strategy with you. and even some of the best ones, they'll bring you customers from their portfolio of co- uh, companies um and then the cons, I mean, I think I hinted at it earlier, but it's misaligned incentives, right? The PE group's sole purpose is to maximize shareholder value. If that means choosing a path you disagree with and you can't dissuade them, whether right or wrong, right? Too bad for you.
0: Right. They 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 absolutely will have a controlling interest in the business and you will have a, uh, you know, some equity or potentially some kind of future equity option in in yep. an eventual role that they might do. And so I think the other thing to mention, too, right, is private equity generally is looking at, you know, four to seven year time frame where they're looking to generally flip the business. So they kind of want to sprint uh, initially, there's usually a really big sprint. and then they kind of want to get into this growth path. And then it's like, what five to seven years is that kind of what you're seeing? Then they're ready to flip it to the next private equity or the next buyer, basically, right?
3: yeah. I mean, you, you bring up an excellent point, right? I, I think I think we get so wrapped up in the process on answering the questions of the private equity group that, you know, founders and sellers don't ask the questions of the private equity group, right? So every group is very different. They all kind of sound the same at first, but mm-hmm. understanding their investment time horizon, understanding what they think of the business in the space, talking to other portfolio companies that they have, I think is really, really important.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, That's it's really fine.
3: interesting.
0: Yeah. I had a, I had a, a conversation. Um, with a guy that was running a private equity group uh, maybe a couple of months ago and a consulting client of mine was looking at, you know, doing a deal. And I had this really interesting conversation where I was having these perceptions about what they were thinking and, and the strategy they were talking about. And I was like, I don't understand where you're going with this. Why are you <laughs> doing this? And then finally he's like, now, I don't know if he told you, but our private equity firm is actually family owned. We don't look to sell. It's a long-term hold. And I'm like, Oh, well, I didn't know that. That <laughs> totally changed. Yeah. You know, Cause they were looking to make long-term investments. So I think that's right. Like you say, it's super important to understand like private equity just means it's not public money. I mean, that could mean anything. There's there's kind of the stereotypical PE fund, but there's a lot of of edge cases, uh,
1: you know, around that. And also the thing, you know, as Alexander said, I mean, when you go that route, and actually when you go almost any of these routes, we're going to talk about, you go from being an entrepreneur to being an employee. Right right and and, and that's I, a big for especially i feel for people in the iso community that's a that's a big leap for a lot of people to make
0: yeah not easy yeah. it's not and it and I, and I think what i found and alexander i don't know if you i'd be interested to hear your thoughts I mean, what i found is especially with the pe side while they are going to come in and add a lot of controls and a lot of constraints at the end of the day it is still very much a performance-based environment and by that i right. mean you know you come in and you're, you're killing your numbers and you're doing fantastic and everybody's making money. You are still running your business. You're, you're Absolutely. The, CEO of the company. You, you have a lot of help, but the difference is you can't just start losing money. You can't just decide I'm going to disengage for six months and take my family on a, on a, you know, cruise yeah. across the world. You can't do that anymore because you have a responsibility to hit certain numbers.
3: Yeah. I, I'd say, nine out of 10 private equity investors, their goal is not to run your company, right? right? They would love for you to give them a plan, hit the plan perfectly and update you quarterly, right? Right. But it doesn't always happen. That, that doesn't way. always happen. All right. So let's <laughs> so let's move on to some other options here. So
0: let's say we got a CEO of a decent size ISO. They currently own a hundred percent of the business. So yep. in their mind, they're going, oh, private equity, no, 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 no. It's not going down that road. I'm not going to give up total. I want to I'm give up complete control, but I do need some outside capital, right? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Or what are some other ways that maybe they could look to get capital to do an acquisition, but it's not an acquisition that's going to need to, they don't need enough capital to take over the whole business. They just want to make sure. an acquisition.
3: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like more just private investment, less institutionalized. I mean, look, any any sort of investment in a business involves a level of trust, right? Trust that the business is going to grow, trust that my investment is safe. So I think the best place to you know find capital is to start with your own network or through warm introductions, right? These are people that can vouch for you or they understand that you're a good operator. Obviously, if that isn't an option, I really recommend utilizing an advisor, right? They are out there all day connecting you with investors and know who could be a right fit for you. Um, I also think there's kind of a fallacy behind ownership and control, right? So someone can own a minority part of the business you being the founder and still have control over the day-to-day operations and major decisions like when to sell but you know if you're going to go down that path definitely get an experienced attorney to draft these documents and really walk you through you know what each term means both from you know a 1000 foot view and the day-to-day operations um and i think going back to your example with private equity if it's private equity or if it's just one person giving you money the biggest piece of advice i can give is to over-communicate with your shareholders. Regardless of your level of control, not having alignment with your investors will always create problems or best case scenario, a distraction and eventually hurt the value of your business. Yeah,
0: that's really good advice. What about, uh, one last kind of real technical question here, but like, what about debt versus uh, equity financing? I mean, I know there's, you know, mezzanine financing. There's a lot of other, right, kind of options out there from the debt side. What's been your experience of that and is that prevalent in our industry as well i really haven't done a lot of deals that along those lines so i'm just kind of curious your thoughts on that
3: yeah i i love debt especially for this industry it's based on diversified recurring revenue right? right um debt is an amazing tool to acquire companies or get growth capital without having to obviously dilute your ownership with outside investors i think uh a problem facing our industry kind of what you just said is there aren't really too many options i spend a ton of my time trying to educate banks on why residual income is a very safe form of collateral and (laughs) it's tough. (laughs) Um, But like you said, when it comes to debt, you have traditional banks, you have the debt funds and you have private lenders. Rates and onerous terms usually get worse in that order. Um, What I will say is if a founder is taking on debt or thinking about it, it's very, very important. They have a deep understanding of their budget, their forecast and their cash flows. And ideally you have, you know, either someone in-house or outsource acting as a CFO to provide guidance on that.
0: Yeah, for sure. You can easily get yourself into trouble with that one. But you know, the other thing too is, you know, you, you do an acquisition. It's kind of like, you know, when we, we bought our last house, you know, it's like, okay, the house cost X. Well, then you move in and you realize, (laughs) oh, wow, I have to fix all these things. Right. And I think in the same way you do an acquisition and kind of feel like, okay, here's the price. Well, yeah, but now you've got to integrate everything, and there's a lot of other things, and so you could miss your projections a little bit. They could fall short. There could be friction. So, yeah, you got to plan for that, right? And, and make sure you got the cash flow to, uh, you know, to, to pull it off. So, um, okay. Very last question I have. I think Patty has a follow up here, but you know, let's say that a company is listening to this and they say, okay, cool, I want to do this. I need to go down this path. I need to acquire. That's that needs to be part of my growth strategy. <laughs> what should they do organizationally? to prepare themselves to start, you know, eventually talking to bankers, investors, PE funds, whatever, what do they need to do to get themselves in, in you know, kind of clean their house to make sure they're in a good position?
3: Yeah. Um, that's great. I, I have a lot of people that will approach us saying, you know, I want to make an acquisition next month. And I say, okay, let me see your financials. And they, you know, say, well, we only have them updated from a year ago. Right. So I think the the first place <laughs> to start, <laughs> you'd be surprised. Um, I think the, the first place to start is with your financials, right? Make sure they're clean, make sure they're up to date. Audit is preferred, but, you know, at a minimum have them reviewed by an outside CPA firm. I think for for fundraising, the CEO really needs to be prepared. Obviously you want to have, you know, the table stakes, which is investment materials that explain the why behind the capital raise. But you also have to be prepared to work two full-time jobs. And I think that's often missed. Raising capital is a ton of work, And it's also the worst time for your business to go backwards, right? So you really are putting in double the work as a CEO. I think, you know, once you do secure funding, you want to make sure you have proof of funds readily available to show a seller so they know you're serious. It's a competitive market. And I think finally, start to think through your integration plan. It's one thing to buy a company, but what does it look like to bring on a whole new set of employees? What does it look like to now potentially have product, right? There's a lot of these what ifs that you have to mentally prepare for and prepare your team for.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I would I would imagine that that goes along with sort of, you know, uh, seeking out an acquisition target, right? I mean 100%. You know, in terms of the first steps so are pretty much those same first steps need to be repeated, right?
3: Yeah, I mean when when you're when you're out there searching for an acquisition target, I think it's I think it's vitally important to have a thesis, right? And going back to raising money, you want to start with your network, right? So it's impossible to look at every deal. So the more narrow and the more focused you can be on your approach, the deeper you're going to go to finding an opportunity and the less time you're going to waste looking at things that aren't fit.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, I like that. I think I think it's a really important point too. I think, you know, you're not a PE fund if you're listening to this. Most likely you don't run a PE fund. So you're not just going to acquire a business because of their EBITDA. You're going there because there's some strategic benefit to making that acquisition, And you need to be able to clearly communicate that to your investors, your shareholders, whatever it is, the the bank, whoever it is you're working with, to say, here's why we're making this particular acquisition and here's how it's going to fit into the overall strategic objectives for the company,
3: right? Yeah. And take it a step further. Just because you want to buy a company doesn't mean they're going to sell it to you, right? I think where (laughs) a lot of founders make a mistake and when they go to do their first acquisition, they assume the seller knows what they're up to, right? I think you need to very clearly sell the vision of what you plan to do with the acquisition to the seller, they're often parting ways with their life's work, right? This is a big deal. Um, and then I guess, you know, the final thing, you know, obviously I'm biased, but my advice is to work with an advisor who can help you identify capital sources and M&A targets, right? I think yep. in addition to that, an advisor an advisor will sit between the buyer and the seller during the negotiations inevitably, every negotiation gets heated. And in most cases, you're going to be working with the seller post-transaction. So it's right. nice to have an advisor sort of as the buffer. But like that's the, take the heat. Good point.
0: Yeah, I like that. So that's a great segue, actually. So but before we, you know, this has been so interesting. And, and as you said, I feel like we could probably take each of these questions and make an entire episode, <laughs> right? So uh, for those that want to learn more, uh, they want to learn more about you, they want to learn more about Map Advisors, give it just a little bit of a hint of kind of like, what does that mean? I own an ISO and I say, I need an advisor. What does that mean? And then where would they go to learn more and to connect with you?
3: Sure. No, I definitely appreciate that. Um, We are a little bit different than most traditional investment banks. We love to meet, talk to, and work with our sellers or buyers well before they're ready to make a transaction. Because both my partner have a history running payments companies, there's a lot of levers we can help pull to sort of maximize valuation before a transaction happens. But you know, you can visit our website, mapadvisors.com. And I really encourage anyone who wants to geek out over payments, not just transactions, um, to reach out to me directly. My email is alexander at mapadvisors.com. And just to clarify, Map Advisors has two Ps. It's M-A-P-P, Ps. advisor,
1: Oh, uh, Map
3: Advisors. Is that right?
0: It's Map Advisors with an S on the end too, right? Correct. Right, right. So there you go. So, com, and that's alexander at mapadvisors.com. Alexander, this has been such an interesting conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time because I've been wanting to have this conversation for a while, and I really appreciate you taking the time out of
3: your busy schedule to do it. Of course. Thank you so much for having me on. Big fan of the show.
0: Hey, everybody. Got another episode here brought to you by ISOAMP. Last week, I talked to you about statement analysis and how you can outsource that. But today, I really want to talk about proposal generation. These two things a lot of times get kind of put together, but they're really two different things. So, statement analysis is about looking at a statement and pulling all the data from that statement, right? And then taking that data and categorizing it correctly so that a proposal can be created. Now, the statement analysis is by far the more complicated and the more frustrating, time consuming part of the process, which is why we built software and use AI as well as human intervention to get it done as efficiently and quickly as possible. However, Having the statement analyzed is not really the end result. You actually want to get a proposal. Well, with Isoamp, we allow you to load multiple schedule A's from multiple processors. We allow you to put margin controls in place, any kind of margin control you want. You could say, well, I want to make sure that I always have at least 10 basis points of margin or 50 basis points of margin or whatever on a particular pricing template. You can have cash discounting, compliance surcharging, interchange plus, flat rate, tiered pricing, whatever you want. And our system works to where your team can do a proposal on any statement for any pricing. You want to go interchange plus to flat rate? No problem. You want to go flat rate to interchange plus? Uh Uh-oh, now we got a problem. Nope. iSAM can handle that as well because we use whatever data is available on the statement to make the best assumptions and guesses that we can on the interchange cost, the card brand fees, the debit network costs, uh, and um, Amex.blue on down the list. So whatever it is that you need, you want to go interchange plus to tiered, tiered to interchange plus. You want to go compliant surcharging to interchange plus or vice versa. Whatever that is, we can handle that. And we do all of it. While your team is able to see in real time using a little slider in real time, they can see the margin on the account as well as their residual split if you want them to see that information. So they do all of that. Then they access our proposal library. And so you get to choose which proposals you want them to see. Do you want to show interchange optimization? We can do that, and I'm going to talk more about that next week. But we have everything that you want from statement analysis all the way through proposal creation. We are the only trusted partner providing full-service statement analysis so you can truly outsource that piece of your business and allow your payments experts to focus on what matters most, which is growing the business and closing deals. My name is James Shepard. Thank you so much for taking time to listen. Head over to getisoamp.com, G-E-T-I-S-O-A-M-P.com to learn more.
2: This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you are an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard.
0: Uh, so, Patty, I just, I can't help but, you know, play off of the interview that we just did with Alexander because I right. really like Alexander and that is a topic I'm just super passionate about. Um, so, you know, I have, I think, a very different opinion maybe than most in this area of uh, growth through acquisition and acquisition in general. Um, I actually don't think there is a right answer. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, I have developed my company, without the use of outside capital. Well, this company, I've developed two previous ones with outside capital, this one without. So no outside capital in any of the the four companies I own right now. Um, you know, we've done some debt, you know, to finance certain initiatives, but very, very minimal. So, you know, very minimal outside capital, basically. Um, however, I would say the vast majority of my consulting clients heavily leverage outside capital. I work with uh, one publicly traded company. I work with several that are privately held, but most of them with a private equity firm. Um, or using uh, significant debt um, to fund growth. And so, you know, what I think is so important here is to define your version of success because if you really want to do what Alexander was talking about and you want to build a company that is trustworthy, right? Because that's so so crucial. You have to have a a company that's trustworthy. Otherwise, no one's going to want to acquire you and no one's going to want to be acquired, right? But to build that out, the key is that trust really comes from the authenticity of what you're trying to accomplish. And I think too many entrepreneurs, they kind of get into this mode and this goes for, and I say entrepreneur, this could be a, a salesperson. This could be, you know, a small ISO owner, it could be anybody. It's easy to get into this mode where you're just trying to make something happen. You know,
3: mm-hmm. sure. You
0: wake up and you just say, I want to just, I want to do something. I want to do a deal. I want to make something happen. I want to like make sales. I want to like hire somebody. I want to do something. Right. That's a very dangerous <laughs> uh, attitude to have. Yeah. Um. You have to start. I've seen a
1: lot of it though over oh, yeah. the years. Yeah. Yes. It's One amazing. of my favorite
0: statements is, um, I actually just said this to a consulting client. I think yesterday I said, you know, you guys. I said, I'm afraid you guys are going to spend six months climbing uh, your team building a ladder, only to realize it's leaned up against the wrong building. Oh. You know, yeah. because you got to be careful because you have to take a step back and say, what is your version of success? And let me be really clear about this because there are different versions, and mm-hmm. and the timeline is really really important. So. Here, I'm going to give you a couple of tips really quick of just kind of how I think about things um, and how I encourage my consulting clients to think about things. Number one, think in decades, or maybe if you're just really, really super aggressive, you might think in terms of five or six years. And what I mean by that is, what can you accomplish over the next 10 years? What can you be the best at for 10 years? What can you get better and better at for 10 years? Um, That's number one. So you got to think in terms of decades, you know, the biggest mistake that I talk to younger entrepreneurs, the biggest mistake they make is they think about what am I going to do this year? Mm -hmm. Let me answer your question. Are you ready for the answer? It's always the same on a care who you are. What are you going to accomplish this year? Here, let me give you the answer. You ready? Not much. Right. (laughs) Like that's the answer, right? Especially if you're new and you say Mm -hmm. I'm starting this business and a year from now we're going to be, no, you're not 10 years from now you could accomplish an incredible thing, but you got to be willing to put a decade into your of your life into something. And if you're not willing to do that, there's a couple of things to be aware of. Number one, your vision is not going to be compelling enough to get really good people to work for you. Your vision is not going to be compelling enough to get outside capital. So right. you have to be thinking, this is something that I'm, I'm 20 and I want to do this until I'm at least 30. I'm 30, I want to do this to 40. I'm 40, I want to do this to 50. A decade of your life into accomplishing something significant, right? What does that look like then? And again, you you can make that mission something that is applicable today that Mm could grow into something later. For me, making merchant sales competitive has been my mission for a very long time. And originally that meant me making free YouTube videos. That's all that was with my little grainy webcam, right? Today, it means providing statement analysis software, training subscriptions, consulting services, building ISVs, you know, doing all these other things. It took a long time to build that all up. It did took about a decade to get yep. to the point where I could kind of do what I wanted to do. So, you know, it takes a long time and that's not just me. That's not just my experience. I talked to many, many other business owners. They say the same thing same you gotta same. be yeah. it for a long time. Yeah. Now, having said that, um, then the question is imagine your life in 10 years. What do you want it to be like? And yeah. if you want to be on the cover of, you know, Forbes, if you want to be on the cover of growth, you know, the fastest growing companies, if you want to do that, you're building to bring on outside capital. That's all there is to it. You're not going to be able to compete without outside capital. Right. So I hate to burst your bubble, but if you're trying to build a billion dollar company over the next 10 years, it's going to be pretty challenging without, without some that. outside capital. Yeah. I mean, and and that's just because that's the jet fuel that you need. Right. Um I have not been trying to build a billion dollar company yet. We'll get to that in another decade, but I haven't done that. That's not what I'm trying to do right now. Right. And so when you, so I didn't need outside capital. So for me, when I looked at at the vision for my life, it was, okay, I'm going to have a family this decade. I'm going to be spending a lot of time with my kids, with my wife, and I want to have total control over my life and total freedom to do whatever I want to do. Well, that says don't get outside capital because you're going to hate it. Right. 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 So, It's a different version. Now, when I built my last ISO, it was, I still want control, but I want to build this thing so I can sell it, so I can fund my future ambitions. So I use debt capital for that one. Mm -hmm. Lots of debt, (laughs) you know? So, and that's how I funded the growth of that one, right? So it's it's these different things where you say, what am I really trying to accomplish? And then what are these trade-offs that I'm willing to take? So you have to think through that, right? If you're an entrepreneur and you've already built something successful, you got to ask yourself, what is the next decades going to be like for me? Mm -hmm. Right. Am I ready to go the private equity route? The nice thing with them is a lot of times that timeline is closer to the five-year mark, five to seven, you know, but you know, what are they looking to get out of it? But you got to say, okay, I'm going to give up some freedom, but in exchange, I'm going to have a lot of fun building this humongous thing, this big company and doing lots of acquisitions and learning from the best in the, in the world of business, right? If you get a good Mm -hmm. PE fund, they're going to have some very talented people on the finance side, operation side. And they're going to help you to scale your company. That's what they want you to do is to increase the valuation. And you're going to make, hopefully you're going to make a ton of money. If you played your cards, right? You took some money off the table, left some money in, you're going to dramatically increase the valuation through this partnership with a private equity firm and resell it. And so maybe that's your path that you're ready to go on. And you're in a place in your life where you're like, hey, I'm ready to work a lot of hours. I'm ready to make this happen. A lot of people are at that place. Then I say, go for it. Bring in the outside capital. So my message is, don't be afraid. Of any of the options, don't don't you know? And and I mean this both ways. There's a lot of people, and and myself included. When I was in my 20s, if you would have told me that I was going to try to build a company without bringing on outside capital, I mean, when I was 26, 27, I would have thought that's a wimp. I mean, really, I didn't even understand that concept. I I get it. I get it. What are you talking about? If I'm a real businessman, I'm going to have investors and a and and I'm going to build something huge and I'm going to build it quick. But you, but you don't
1: understand. Then at that point, you didn't understand what the trade offs were.
0: Exactly. And when you see the trade-offs, sometimes you say, you know what, I think for the next five, 10 years of my life, I don't think I want the outside capital. And that's right. fine. Don't be afraid to make that decision. You know, I can't tell you, Patty, how many people in the last three months, I promise you, I've had at least two, three people a month who are very powerful people at really big companies that have said to me, James, what are you doing? why aren't you running a billion dollar company? Why aren't you running your own processor? Why aren't you doing this and that? And and I've told all of them with total confidence, that's not my mission right now. That's not what I'm trying to do. That doesn't map to my version of success right now. And when I explain it to them, they respect that. And they say, well, good for you. That's great. I love that you're spending time with your kids and your family and let's partner someday in the future when you're ready to do that. And I say, hey, that's great. So I'm making those connections, but, but you have to, don't be afraid to do that. Don't be afraid of the well, I don't fly private everywhere I go and I don't have this, I don't have a hundred employees and I don't have this and I don't have that. Don't let that get to you, right? Right. Because you can see this person on the cover of this magazine or this person doing this and you can think, oh my goodness, I could build that. Well, you could, but but your trade-offs might not be what you wanted versus their trade-offs might've been what they did want. So don't be afraid of that, but also don't be afraid of the other side. You know, maybe you've been building on your own for a long time. And it's time. You're not feeling challenged anymore. You make tons of money, but you think, wait a second. I thought I wanted to be worth a hundred million dollars someday and I'm worth 2 million. I'm very blessed, but I need to get to the next level. Well, if you want to get there, you might have to have some trade-offs. You might have to bring on a private equity firm. It's going to push you and hold you accountable right. and give you the jet fuel of capital that you need to grow. And don't be afraid of that. It just, you got to take a step back and say, what is my definition of success five to 10 years from now? And then make sure you're on the path day in and day out to get to that version of success. And so that's my little piece of advice uh, as a follow-up to the interview with Alexander.
1: Thanks, James.
2: This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at
1: www.greensheet.com. So, James, you know, consumers have been flocking to buy now, pay later. Um, It seems to be, uh, you know, a lot of research and reporting. I mean, there doesn't seem to be a a day, certainly not a week that passes that I don't see a story about it, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. I wanted to focus, uh, you know, kind of zero in on two reports this week, one by Forbes, the magazine, and another by an academic study by some economists, at Harvard Business School and the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is a not-for-profit that's in Cambridge, so I got a feeling it's a lot of the people affiliated with Harvard. Harvard, but anyway, um, some real notable insights. And just for background, just so everybody you know knows where I'm, just so we're all on the same page, so to speak. Uh, buy now, pay later market in the U.S. was estimated by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. To encompass 180 million loans totaling more than 24 billion in 2021. Whew. Wow! Now, but to put this in perspective, total outstanding unsecured credit in the U.S. in in 2022 was a uh, trillion dollars. So it's about two percent. Right now. There is a downside to all of this. Um, the online website, uh, the online uh, data source, Statista, mm-hmm. um, reported that in June um, 2022, okay. this, there's a lot of twos here, June 2022, <laughs> 22% of buy now, pay later users had fallen behind by one or more payments.
3: Mm,
1: wow. Yeah, so that's that's up from 16 percent in June of 2021, mm. but down from 33 percent in February of 2022. Wow. Now, I'm thinking that February 2022 may have been a lot of the data from people who used it for Christmas shopping.
0: Sure. Yeah. Right? I wonder if
1: it that's that's I wonder if it'd be cyclical like that, where I and that's something I'm going to be looking at because yeah. there's, there's uh, the. I could kind
0: of see some of the BNPL players realizing that maybe if the, if that's the case, and maybe they start offering the the January special, skip a payment kind of thing. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. just so that it, just so it's like keep that good relationship. Let's let's skip a payment if you need to. You know, give Something them like a, that. give
1: them a little breathing space. You yeah, know? I could see that. I could see that happening. Um, so, he, and I also to, So now let's go into the um, economic study. It was called "Buy Now, Pay Later" user characteristics. And effects on spending patterns. This is like a data geek's heaven. This report. It's it's like so much data. It's right. you know just literally like thirty pages of it. Um, but some of the stuff that I gleaned from that was, um, and this was published in August of 2022. Um, buy now, pay later was um, equal to about two percent of total credit card spend and the user base was about one-fifth of the number of credit card users. Um, About 16% of Americans have used buy now, pay later at once, at least once, and 30% consider themselves persistent users. Okay. Now I have to admit James, you know, I've been struck by this whole trend. I've been trying to wrap my head around the willingness of merchants to offer buy now, pay later, because the rates, you know, four to eight percent that are charged the merchants are pretty, you know, that's like almost that's double what they would pay for credit card fees. Right. So, but then when I was looking at the Forbes survey and the and the data from the uh, Harvard um, economist, the light bulb went off. Right. Now Forbes surveyed a thousand Americans in November of 2022 asking them about their different um, uses of uh, their uses of different financing options generally. And during the holiday season in particular. So here are some of the key reasons revealed um, in the Forbes article and the Forbes research about buy now pay later use 64% of Americans were planning to use it to purchase holiday gifts. 70% said they would use it to spend more than they had planned. Yeah. And 70 percent would consider using it for everyday purchases, not just special purchases. You know, the top reason for using it obviously was to reduce the impact of big purchases. Second, most common um, reason was to purchase something that they couldn't afford right now. So yeah. that kind of goes with that. Right. And But here's some like really additional data points that really drive on the point just blows my mind. Um, in terms of how they, you know, the, the machinations they went through, the economists went through to come up with some of this data. Um, but basically, buy now, pay later um, access increases both total spending levels and the retail share of total spending by significant amounts. And this applies to consumers across the income spectrums and creditworthiness spectrums. Um, And the increase does not just apply to buy now, pay later purchases. They said the total spending increases about $130, excuse me, $130 at the time, the first, so first use. So I'm going to spend $130 more than I would have for a product if I buy it with buy now, pay later. But increased spending remains elevated for 24 weeks following. And some of that money is going to, um, you know, buy now, pay later interest or late payments. Right. But most of it is going to um, retailing and other categories like essential spending and non-retail discretionary spending. So obviously, you know, mm-hmm. consumers have, you know, feel like they have more spending power when they're using buy now, pay later. And uh, the merchants are willing to pay that extra amount just to get that extra money.
0: You know, one of the interesting things too is I wonder how this is going to play out. You know, you mentioned the, you know, the merchant paying the higher fee. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how that's going to play out. <laughs> Excuse me. I was thinking about, you know, Apple's new uh, BNPL. Right. I don't really know how the mechanics of that work behind the scenes. I mean, is that is that the kind of thing where the merchant is paying something or is that just... Uh, to be honest, finance, I have not right? researched
1: the Apple one that close, but I'm, I'm assuming that the merchant's going to have to pay something for that.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I was kind of curious about that. I wonder, because I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where when you go through Apple Pay, you just have an option to do a BNPL. Right. But it's like they're not having the merchant agree to any particular fees, I don't think, as a result of that. So I'm like – or maybe they, you have to be part of the network or something. I'm not sure. So that's an interesting
1: – I'll tell you what. On. I will do some research on that, and we'll talk about that mm-hmm. in our next insiders report. I love it. Awesome. Well, I'd you, really bye. be interested in knowing, and, you know, we can do some comparison because, yeah. you know, one of the things I think is important, you know, there's there are these major companies, right, like Karna right. and Afterpay. What's the other one? Affirm. Mm-hmm. right but there's also some that uh, you know we've talked with mark bochamp for for example so, mm-hmm. with his company you know there are there are opportunities
0: oh absolutely 100 percent. and i think there's a lot of opportunities here for the isos um, That's what i was just talking to yeah i was just talking to an executive the other day from one of the big processors everybody would know and i asked him uh what is he thinking about you know 2023 and he's like on top of my list of bnpl i was like really yeah. He said, oh, it's just, you know, huge wallet share and everything like that. And mm-hmm. so, you know, big, big margins. So yeah, you know, I think it's something a lot of the companies are thinking about. And, uh, yeah. and there's a lot of companies that are offering various solutions. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out for
1: sure. And I did some, you know, when I was doing some research for this report, you know, I came upon Ally Bank, which had really, you know, um, a few weeks, a few, a few years ago was jumpstarting its acquiring business. And now this year it's been, you know, um, promoting, to that business, a, right. um, a, I think it's foreign and it has an agreed with you, but they're yeah. one of those, you know, to right. offer
2: buying out
0: Right. Hmm. Well, very interesting market. I'm sure to keep us up to date, but uh, thanks for the update on this one. Sure
1: thing.
2: Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time.